to Coming to Our Senses, the podcast where we try to make sense of sensation. I'm Nick, I'm your host, and this is the second episode of the podcast. Um, Last week, we kind of introduced the podcast um, and talked a little bit about the spice of life, about the role of flavor. Um, And just to recap, uh, I'm going to be doing episodes uh, bi-weekly or twice a month um, and each episode will focus on a topic related to sensation. Um, and this is really an opportunity for me to explore some curiosities that I have um, as a graduate student, but also a chance to kind of unpack some of the interesting ways that we encounter our senses every day. Um, so this episode will focus uh, on the topic of sensory deprivation in horror films, um, and I'll be looking in depth at Bird Box and A Quiet Place, which both came out in the last five years, both recent and very famous um, horror, maybe post-apocalyptic thrillers, um, interesting films that I think have a lot of parallels, a lot of interesting overlapping themes, um, and give us a lot of fodder for talking about sensation. So today we're going to be looking at those movies. There will be some spoilers, so if you haven't seen them yet, maybe wait until you have to listen to this podcast. And also there are going to be some difficult themes around death, mortality, the loss of childhood, um, so if, if that's not your flavor, then, uh, feel free to, to skip to the next episode. Um, anyway, uh, let's hop into it. So, so I'll give you a little bit of background about what's going to be in this episode. Um, I want to start out with just a little bit of context for the films and then dive into four different themes that I think, uh, encapsulate what I mean when I'm talking about coming to our senses in terms of horror films. Um, You've probably seen a number of horror films and know that both in the metaphorical sense and in the cinematographic choices made in those films, um, the senses are super important, uh, you know, in terms of jump scares and the role of music and the the way that they film, the choices they make about wh- where to film, um, who's involved. All of those choices are very much choices made to affect our senses, made to affect um, how we, in audiovisual terms, see and hear um, uh, the movie. Um, so these, I picked these two films because of their similarities. Um, they both deal with apocalyptic scenarios, um, with dangerous threats that come from, um, predominantly everyday sensation. And and in the case of Bird Box, that's sight. And in the case of A Quiet Place, that's sound. Um, so, in a quiet place, what, what's going on is um, a family is trying to survive the continuous threat of these monsters that hunt based on um, noise. So they have incredible capacity to hear, I think somewhat using echolocation and just having weird uh, auditory complexes um, that allow them to hear and hunt uh, pretty proficiently through sound. Um, and so throughout the film... Uh, the family deals with the dangers of this uh, these monsters in very strategic ways um, and to some success, although not a complete success, as we'll talk about. In Bird Box, um, 
the it's kind of the opposite where instead of sight being the main or sorry instead of sound being the main um, issue sight is and so the monsters are never shown in the film which is a particular strategy we'll talk about but um if you are to look and this starts this is how the film starts if you were to look outside um you and encounter one of these monsters um it portrays images that are so powerfully horrific um powerfully personally horrific i should say um that cause the seer to um immediately want to commit suicide or to 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 die or to get away from this monster and so um in the in bird box you see uh that early in the film several people in the public and in the street on tv are 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 trying to end the horrors that they encounter when seeing these monsters, um, which is kind of the premise of, of the film. So you can see that both of these films are predicated on um, the central conflict being the loss of sensation or sensory deprivation, um, but both also provide a commentary on um, how we sense the world, which I'll get into, that I think is goes beyond just the, okay, you know, now we have to be quiet or now we can't look. Um, it goes more into a bit of a metaphorical commentary on uh, how we actually choose to see and, and listen um, uh, in our daily lives. So we'll get into that. And, and I'm going to talk about four themes, as I mentioned, four categories. Um, the first is going to be the cinemagraphic choices that the uh, uh, producers, uh, directors made to induce a form of sensory deprivation for the, the viewer. Um, second is I'm going to talk about the main movie conflict, uh, the, the central, uh, conflict that, that, that is presented through sensory deprivation, um, to consider how those conflicts, uh, test the characters in terms of reinventing, reimagining their connection to sight and sound. Third, um, I'm going to talk about the kind of strategies that the characters use to adjust to these deprivations. Um, so how do they uh, strategically avoid the monsters, so to speak, and how do they um, change their lives to meet the sensory demands of their environments? Um, and finally, I'm going to end with the returning to the metaphors that I think they're offering in terms of critique, talking about um, how I think these films are pushing a little bit more um, the boundaries of what a, a commentary or critique on, on sensation can be. Um, so with that, let's hop into it. Um, the first category, as I mentioned, is the cinemagraphic choices that the producers have made. Um, and why I want to look at this is I think there are some clever, very subtle ways that the producers bring the audience into the experience of the film um, through the audience's own sensations, through their own sight and, and sound. Um, so there's a long history in uh, academic analysis that looks at how films, particularly horror films, use sensation. And I'm not going to go into it, um, but there is a long history that I think this these films draw on. Um, and you can kind of see some parallels with other films. Um, there are a number of concurrent sensory deprivation films uh, that, that look at kind of the post-apocalyptic um, uh, uh, 
genre uh, through the senses, including there's a new uh, series called C on Apple TV. Um, there's a movie called A Perfect Sense, which is 2000, came out in 2011. Um, there's a movie called The Silence, another one called Hush. And so there are a lot of contemporary films that use sensory deprivation within this genre, and then a lot of films that really strategically use the senses elsewhere. So I'm not going to get into that now, but I, I do want to talk about the choices that the producers made. And, and the first one is that they choose to manipulate the senses to signal a certain mood. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, in Bird Box, the main character, Mallory, um, strategically chooses to keep along uh, a couple of birds that she finds during a, a supply run to a grocery store. Um, she decides to keep these birds with her on her person because the birds offer a signal of danger. So when the monsters are near, the birds start chirping really loudly. Um, and when the monster isn't, they are tranquil and chirp as they normally would. So as the viewer, you start to sense anxiety during the moments in which the birds start to flutter and jump around their cage. Um, and this strategy alludes to the to the title of the film uh bird box right um and so you can see that the use of the sound that the audience hears creates this tension um for the audience themselves the, the an awareness or kind of uh a preparation for anxiety uh due to the to the presence of the monsters um the opposite is true too where the possibility of creating a mood of tranquility emerges through um, certain forms of music and certain uh, visual visual presences. So in A Quiet Place, um, there are several shots in moments of safety where it zooms into um, the father of the film, which is played by John Krasinski, um, embracing with his children um, in moments where they've escaped danger or or they're having an emotional connection. And when it zooms into the their hugs, their embraces, um, the audience is kind of brought into a sense of proximity, a sense of closeness. Um, often there's pleasant music in the background, which is kind of a nod to the fact that you don't need to be scared in this moment. In particular, this is a form of temporary resolution where the characters um, can embrace um, and so this happens in several instances there's another moment in in a quiet place where um, the mother of the family uh, which is played by Emily Blunt um, is holding a stethoscope up to her stomach to hear the heartbeat of her newborn uh, or her unborn baby um, and the audience members can also hear the heartbeats as they start to play and see um, Emily Blunt's face start to smile, um, kind of temporary temporary resolution again, temporary calmness through the sounds of the baby. The sensory choices of the producers also help to bring the audience member into the film in certain moments as though they were experiencing the horrors. Um, and one example here is in Bird Box, there are several instances in which the characters have to wear blindfolds when they're outside to avoid the seeing the monsters and, and 
seeing the horrors that that the monsters bring and during these shots there are several moments in which the camera appears to be behind a blindfold as well as the character is running through the woods or trying to get into a supply shed for instance so as the viewer you are behind the blindfold literally and your view is obscured much the way that the characters would be and this this tool or this tactic brings the viewer in Again, in Bird Box, when the monsters come, there's a certain rustling of the leaves. And as I mentioned earlier, the film never actually shows uh, the monster. And so this is another strategic choice where the danger is not actually visible. As the viewer, you're continuously waiting to see the monster, but are only teased with the rustling of the leaves. And so that auditory stimulus um, and the lack of a visual stimulus creates this constant tension in which you are constantly waiting for the monster to appear. Um, A Quiet Place does this too. A lot of the film is done from the daughter's perspective. The oldest daughter is hearing impaired. So while during the rest of the movie, you hear some background noises, even though it's quiet, when it's from the perspective of the oldest daughter, the film is absolutely silent. And in several instances, You, as the viewer, get this dramatic uh, visibility of the monster that you know is behind the oldest daughter, uh, but since she can't hear, um, has no, no awareness that the monster is behind her. So the film uses these strategies to bounce between moments of absolute quietness and often dramatic, loud, uh, uh, tensions where, where the monsters arrive, um, This is perhaps most iconic in the opening scene to A Quiet Place where uh, when the family is hunting for supplies in a local drugstore, the youngest child is searching for a toy. He encounters this spaceship, um, which his father and mother immediately scold him for taking because there are batteries um, in the spaceship that make it light up and give it some sound effects. Um, Not to spoil too much, but this ends up coming back to be the child's demise when he picks up the batteries and walks out of the uh, store playing with the toy only to be um, found, only to signal the the arrival of the monsters when he went walking. Um, So there are these kind of back and forth between the dramatic silences and the dramatic noise moments in a quiet place and similarly as the viewer in a bird box you are constantly kept out of or kept in the dark as the characters are through the blindfolds and and other mechanisms in addition to the stylistic choices of the film there are many clever ways that the producers use the central conflict to denote sensory deprivation and its consequences Um, Throughout the film, for instance, sensory deprivation is linked to emotions, particularly negative and particularly powerful emotions, um, such as blame, danger, sadness, depression. Um, For instance, in Bird Box, one of the entry moments or one of the first moments of the film is worldwide panic. And this is seen in a scene where people are crashing their cars People are running down the street, trying to get into houses, trying to avoid these monsters. And so when the panic emerges, the first thing that occurs to a lot of the the 
characters is to run and hide. And so the the kind of loss of sight, that first initial realization of that the monsters are you know prone to uh, uh, visual stimuli, um, is linked to the global panic. And this is seen again in the scene where the sister of the main character, Mallory, um, happens to look into the monster and see a familial tragedy um, and immediately become depressed. She starts crying um, and immediately tries to kill herself. And so while Mallory can't see what's going on, um, her sister uh, immediately is, is, is taken by this monster. So the sensory deprivation here is linked to the sadness. In, in a lot of ways, this occurs throughout the film um, and in A Quiet Place as well. So, for instance, in A Quiet Place, one of the early scenes is the mother of the family reaching to grab a pill bottle to give her child some medicine. Now, the child is sick, and she is trying to decide which uh, drugs to give him, hence them being at the drugstore. And as she reaches, she knows that the pill bottles make a lot of noise, and so there's this kind of eerie, tense, careful moment where she's grabbing the right medicine from the shelf, uh, without making uh, any noise. Another way that the senses emerge in the central conflict is through the portrayal of the monsters themselves. Now, as I mentioned in Bird Box, the monster is never actually seen, or at least the audience can't see the monster. The closest we get is when one of the characters um, starts to fan out their drawings of the monster onto a table. We later learn that this character um, has been released from um, a mental institution um, and is what we might consider sociopathic and actually likes looking at the monster. So the only visual representations we have of the monster are uh, his drawings. Now, this also is one of the central themes to the film that there are several people that actually can look at the monsters and choose to look at the monsters and actually want others to look at the monsters. So this character that I'm mentioning at one point goes into the room where the other characters are and opens the windows to force them to look into the light. At this point, uh, Olympia, who is one of the um, survivors uh, who is giving birth at the moment, um, looks into the light, immediately becomes overcome with sadness, and jumps out the window. Um, the sociopathic character in this instance um, is trying to force everyone to see the monster, to to be come to the light, as, as they say. Um, this happens in A Quiet Place, too. You get several looks at the monsters, particularly later in the film, um, and you see how they use echolocation, um, how they use their intense um, abilities to hear uh, and have incredibly powerful capabilities of hearing through the visual depictions that you get later in the film. Um, there's also a strategy used that when it's from the perspective of the monster, you, the audience member, get to hear with high clarity and you know the sound increases what the monster is hearing. For instance, the crickets in the background or if one of the characters makes a move, uh, even a slight move, the sound of their foot or the sound of, of them walking. So the the zooming into the monsters and the centrality of the monsters makes it apparent how everyday tasks 
are difficult because of sensory deprivation. Children can't play games without being careful. In both films, there are women that have to give birth during the apocalypse quietly or without looking at the light. And it shows how just instrumental these senses are or were and how they were taken for granted by the characters before the apocalypse began. The final way that the central conflict relates to sensation is the need for characters to sacrifice themselves or to create diversions during the film using sensation. So in A Quiet Place, the climax of the film is when John Krasinski, the father of the family, realizes that his children are being attacked by the monster and that the only way to draw the monster away from them is to make a louder noise, to create a stir and 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 change the monster's attention to be focused on him. The father, in this instance, yells to draw away the monsters from the car that his children are sitting in, and immediately the monster's attention is diverted. It's clear that this is a sacrifice that the father is making, and right before he yells, he uses sign language to signal to his Uh, daughter that he uh, loved her and that he didn't blame her for um, an earlier incidence in which she had essentially caused the death of her younger brother. This is also the case in Bird Box when in early in the film one of the survivors offers or volunteers to um, look through a camera to see if he can see the monster through the camera. This results in his death as he can and ends up seeing some horrific images. There's also another example in the film where um, one character, Charlie, who is a grocery store employee, um, offers or sacrifices his life by tackling a sociopathic uh, uh, person through it, when they're in the grocery store to protect the rest of the group in, in the process sacrificing his own life. So there are several instances in which sacrifice becomes a central theme um, and in which the characters use the senses to draw away the monsters from the others. Um, The, I guess, other iconic moment um, in Bird Box is when, um, towards the end, Tom, who has become the father figure of the family uh, that has survived Tom, Mallory, and the two children. Um, Tom decides to distract some of the uh, uh, crazy people who are trying to show them the light and essentially kill them by uh, going out and and shooting them. This gives Mallory and the children a chance to escape and is, again, another example of confronting the dangers of the apocalypse um, through sacrifice. So while it's clear that the producers have many clever ways of getting the audience to experience the sensory deprivation that the characters are experiencing, both through the central conflict and the choices they make within the film um, cinemagraphically, there are also several strategies that emerge from the perspective of the characters, meaning ways that the characters get around some of the uh, hardships of the apocalypse. So, for instance, in Bird Box, there are several moments where the characters decide not to look. As I mentioned, they're frequently wearing blindfolds or other coverings over their eyes. 
Uh, they put up newspapers on windows to avoid seeing um, the monsters through the windows. And at one point, um, they cleverly tape up the windows of a car and use the GPS system to navigate to a grocery store without being seen. They also train to be good at using sound to get around instead of sight. So, for instance, um, Mallory, the main character, teaches the two children she's taking care of to make clicks with rocks to echolocate when they're walking around in the garden. And she also picks up some bells off of bikes and allows the children to uh, ring the bells or ask them to ring the bells if they're ever in danger, sort of an auditory um, form of, of of signaling to Mallory that they're in trouble. There are other kind of strategic ways. Mallory sets up a number of fishing lines to track her steps. There's a rope path that's been mapped out in the around the house that they're staying in. And the main kind of conclusion to the film is that she has to follow the birds that she's captured um, and the sounds of the birds to safety, kind of the canary in a coal mine uh, uh, metaphor. But she follows the sounds of the birds to their eventual rescue. These strategies also merge in a quiet place, and there are several both subtle forms of strategy that the characters use and more uh, uh, clear instances in which uh, they've manipulated their environment. One of the iconic scenes that um, emerges, I think, about halfway through the film is when John Krasinski takes his oldest son to a waterfall. Now, given that the waterfall is a rather loud area, the monsters are deterred because of the constant sound. So John explains to his son that the water is going to be a form of protection, a space where they can be safe or at least a little louder than they normally are. And there's kind of a beautiful moment where he screams behind the waterfall and allows his son to do the same. And this is kind of a moment where the son gets to recognize that, you know, while he has to be quiet during the rest of his life to avoid these monsters, this is a space where he can yell and can be loud. Um, they have other subtle strategies, as I mentioned. Um, one of them is they set up these paths throughout the town uh, that are entirely covered in sand so that when they walk, they're not crunching leaves and their footsteps don't make too many sounds. They learn sign language to communicate with each other, and it's not entirely clear if this is something they knew before the apocalypse started because their young or their oldest daughter um, uh, has a... Um, a cochlear implant, um, or if this is something they picked up during the apocalypse to survive. Regardless, they use sign language in several moments, including the kind of climax moment where John signals to his children that uh, he's going to sacrifice himself. They also communicate with their neighbors using signal fires, and this is interesting. Um, similar to the scene in Lord of the Rings, there's a scene of John Krasinski sitting on top of a uh, a mill, a, a corn mill, where he's lighting a fire and he can see on the surrounding hills several other fires start to light, supposedly meaning that all of the neighbors that do light their fires are doing okay. There are also other forms of uh, alerting each other and their neighbors when there's trouble. During one of the scenes in which um, the the mother of the family played by Emily Blunt, um, has to notify John Krasinski that there's trouble. So she 
turns the lights that they have around their house red using a switch um, and then hides. This is immediately after she's stepped on a nail and is going into labor. Um, and so it becomes this kind of silent alarm, allowing John to know that there is an issue at the farm. They also use sound as distraction. So while they know that the monsters are attracted to sound, one of the main um, ways they deter or get away from the monsters is by creating distractions. So the main one is when John sees the lights that his uh, uh, wife has lit, he sends his son to set off fireworks, which draws the monsters away right before they have a chance to uh kill or eat uh, Emily Blunt as she's giving birth in the film. So the the sound becomes a form of distraction. Emily Blunt also uses a uh, um, alarm, uh, a cooking alarm to distract the monsters that are that are tracking her. Um, and then there are other instances where they choose, you know, to to avoid sound by not eating chips or, um, as I mentioned, putting up soundproofing in their homes. So there are a number of strategies that that the characters employ, which which shows that, you know, over time during these apocalypse, they are finding clever ways to adjust to the new sensory environments and the new limitations that they have in place. So to reflect, I've talked a little bit about the sensory choices of the films in terms of the central conflicts, the strategies that the characters deploy, and the actual visual effects and audio effects of the film. Um, the last thing that I want to touch on is the way that these films as a whole offer a critique on modern sensation, our relationship to perception and how we understand the world through our senses and in this case um, sight and sound so i think these films are capitalizing not only on our fear of monsters obviously there are several great scares that emerge during these films as the viewer where you are either jump scared or filled with anxiety for for several minutes but there are also the very idea of sensory deprivation becomes one of the main forms of scaring the audience members. Both of these films are thinkers, and as you leave the theater or after you finish viewing them for the first time, you're left puzzled about what you would do in those situations. And I think this is predominantly because it's, it strikes a nerve in terms of what would we do if we were forced to consider or reckon with sensory deprivation, um, immediate sensory deprivation with kind of drastic consequences. In a, as a whole, we, we really do put a lot of trust in sight and sound, and these films are do a really good job of showing us how dependent we are on sight and sound in our modern lives. So this is considered in academic terms, the scopic modernity, um, where we tie sight and sound to a lesser degree to ideas of rationality and science and trust. We give validity to what we see. And this is, you know, there are several popular phrases, but I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. We, we put all our faith and all our trust in what we can see and what we can hear and don't pay as much of attention to what are known as the proximate senses, so taste, smell, and touch. And so 
these films offer the critique of our dependency on the audiovisual and our lack of connection to um, other forms of sensation. Um, I think that these films also offer a critique of the role of sensation in our lives by showing how, one, the characters have a renewed appreciation of their choices, the way they portray childhood, the resolution to the films, and in the ways that they consider sensation in day-to-day life rather than as these consequential moments. Um, So the everyday or the quotidian engagements with sensation rather than events and and kind of big moments. So for the final um, moments here, I want to talk a little bit about this critique in terms of those categories and hop into a little bit of a discussion of what the the lessons or what are the takeaways of this comparison is or what what the takeaways can be. So as I mentioned, both films do a good job of showing how the characters have a renewed appreciation for their senses, particularly the senses that aren't being deprived. Um, in Bird Box, for instance, there's a scene where Mallory, um, who has fallen in love with Tom, uh, brings home a uh, nightgown, a silk nightgown from one of their um, uh, outings to go look for for food or, or what, else, what have you. Uh, and this is a clear choice that's not about survival. It's about um, uh, affection. It's about being sexy. It's about paying attention to her relationship with Tom. Um, and it gives us this, you know, it, the, the scene pans to them um, uh, going to bed together, which is, you know, a form of appreciation of touch that is a way of taking away from every day, every moment of this apocalypse, we need to be surviving. Rather, we can take a moment to appreciate each other. They do this similarly on one of their uh, hunts for supplies where they encounter a box of Pop-Tarts. Mallory shows this to Tom, who immediately smiles knowing that, you know, Pop-Tarts are a rather a delicacy uh, in, in these post-apocalyptic moments, and they share, you know, a piece with their two children. And this moment of pause, this moment of calm, where they're trying a food that is obviously tasty and obviously a rare treat, is a clear appreciation of taste in a way that uh, perhaps they wouldn't have before the apocalypse. The ability to eat a Pop-Tart um, and you know, today is nothing but in in a post-apocalyptic moment, uh, perhaps one of the biggest rarities of of all. A Quiet Place does this too. As I mentioned earlier, there are several scenes where there are long embraces or hugs between um, the main characters where you as the audience are kind of aware of the role of touch and the importance of those physical connections when sound is dangerous. Um, Similar to the Pop-Tart scene in in Bird Box, in A Quiet Place, there's a scene where they're all eating together, they're sharing, they're handing food across the table, they're eating quietly, um, and it becomes clear that, you know, they do spend family moments and appreciate the ability to be in this each other's proximity, to eat together, to taste together, um, and to communicate while not being noisy or without, without using sound. The other kind of iconic scene um, that uses 
that shows the renewed appreciation for the senses is about halfway during the film in a quiet place where Emily Blunt's character uh, walks up to John Krasinski's character uh, and she's got on headphones connected to an iPod. Um, The film for the audience is silent up until the moment where she puts a headphone in John Krasinski's ear and the um, uh, music starts to play. Now, this scene is quite beautiful because it shows an appreciation for sound and it also shows a connection between the two parents who have a clearly stressful life protecting their children um reflecting on their ability to be together with each other so there's this clear renewed appreciation for other senses for taste sound sight in a way that is, I think, a critique of the film that we aren't appreciative of how we have it now. And I, I mean, I think that's kind of a, a not exactly what they're saying, but the umph of the film is that, you know, there is, an, there is an ability to appreciate what we have because the loss of what we have sensorially is a form of horror, is a form of scare. The second critique that the producers offer in both of these films comes in their portrayal of childhood. Now, in both films, as I mentioned a moment ago, women have to give birth in these incredibly difficult situations, and one without the ability to see and one without the ability to make noise. And I think the critique offered here is this idea that no matter the situation, no matter how tough things get, life goes on. And so the introduction of children into these post-apocalyptic sensorily deprived worlds is a way of saying that humans persist through difficulties humans are are find ways of adapting um, to their situations and through the eyes of children we can see some of those moments of purity and innocence and recognizing the world that they're coming into so in both films as i'll mention in a second children's role is central to how the films are discussing sensation to begin with. Um, in Bird Box, one of the kind of main arguments that happens between Tom and Mallory is whether or not to give the children hope about what a potential future would look like. So in the one scene I'm thinking about, Tom is telling the story about climbing a tree um, and both children are looking on uh, very intently, but Mallory ends the story and tells the children to go to sleep before Tom can finish. This is followed by an argument between Mallory and Tom about whether or not children should have those hopes and dreams given their situation. Um, this theme is is followed throughout the film. Um, Mallory chooses not to give the children name and ins- names and instead calls them boy and girl, kind of tampering or 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 taking away their identity in a sense but so as to not become too attached um at several instances the children uh are are scolded for wandering off or or you know making noise or you know trying to go outside um and and it's clear that their kind of curiosities uh are butting up against the realities of the situations where the monsters could eat um or, or kill the children now, this is also visible in a quiet place where there are also children um, who face the consequences of the monsters. Um, 
as I mentioned at the beginning, the the classic scene where the child is playing with a toy um, and wants to make the rocket make noise ends up in his eventual death, which is a kind of direct testament to the dangers of playing, um, not being aware of the dangers of the world. Um, the oldest daughter in A Quiet Place is also going through a transition where she's coming to realize the dangers of the world, but she is a little bit more wise to her role or how she has to be protective of her siblings and how she has to learn to survive. However, there's not this, there's this clear tension between her and her father played by John Krasinski, who are trying to, um, who's trying to help her uh, create a device uh, uh, for listening, a cochlear implant. Um, and she doesn't recognize his efforts and instead sees the way he relates to her as distancing until the end of the film when he sacrifices himself for her. So there's this, there's these constant moments of the children in the films having to be careful around their play and having to come to moments of maturity in ways that other children, uh, perhaps in pre-apocalyptic worlds, wouldn't have to. Now, the final critique of both of these films comes in the resolution to the movie. Um, in Bird Box, the main character, Mallory, arrives at a safe haven with the two children that she's taking care of, which is a school for the blind. Um, and in a quiet place, while they don't reach a uh, safe haven, at least not in the first film, um, at the end they recognize the weakness of the monster and are able to kill uh, uh, the monster that's attacking them. Now, the resolution is interesting because it's often based in the medium that's being deprived, um, a kind of full circle critique of of sensation in this in this way. So for Bird Box, the main character Mallory is portrayed as an artist in the beginning of the film, which is a visual medium and which is a uh, a medium that she uh, grounds her happiness, her identity in. Um, and at the end of the film, it ends with her looking up at this beautiful gallery of birds. Um, looking up into nature and not worrying about the presence of the monsters. So this kind of return to her appreciation for the visual, for being able to see, um, gets at her trajectory of, you know, realizing that there's sensory deprivation, that she can't look, that she has to cre create all these creative um, new strategies for survival, and then ultimately finding some form of resolution, some form of comfort in the visual um, at the school for the blind. And, you know, at this school, at this safe haven, the children can play. Um, she starts to trust her hearing and, you know, avoid the the monsters. And so this, this return to um, the visual that she comes to appreciate. This is similar with A Quiet Place where the oldest daughter learns that the high frequencies emitted by her cochlear implant um, actually are what have been deterring the monsters throughout the film. Um, there's this scene at the end where she cleverly plays the noise of her cochlear implant over a radio frequency, which completely debilitates the monster that's attacking them and gives Emily Blunt's character a chance to shoot the monster in the face. So figuring out that 
while sound is dangerous, while being noisy is dangerous, being noisy can also be the way the solution it cannot it's also the weakness of the monsters so a new appreciation for sound a new way of of using sound becomes the way of going from needing to be quiet to using sound as your weapon and if we think of these two trajectories of the films as a form of critique it's interesting because it shows us that you know it's not that we need to get away from our audiovisual connections and only appreciate taste touch smell it's a form of saying that we need renewed appreciation for how we see how we listen um, and thinking through the the beauty the power of our senses to perceive the world so with that I'll bring this podcast to a conclusion. I just want to quickly go back through and and talk about what we have talked about today. Um, We reviewed A Quiet Place and Bird Box, which are two films that have recently emerged and that deal with um, apocalyptic scenarios where monsters um, threaten or deprive the ability to see and hear. Uh, We talked a little bit about the background of these films, about the cinematographic choices that they made, what sounds, what sights do you get as the viewer. Um, And then we also talked about some of the themes of the films, the main conflict, um, some of the strategies that emerge from the characters, and some of the ways that these um, arcs or these trajectories of the film and of the character culminate in what I think are more general critiques of uh, our world and and our dependency on sound and sight. So if you have any interest in these films or want to know what the heck I'm talking about, I highly recommend checking them out. Um, One is available on Netflix and the other is available on a number of sites, but um, you have to either pay or or be a member. Um, So that's going to do it for today. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Um, If you haven't already, you can follow me on Twitter at at senses underscore podcast, or you can just look up coming to our senses. And this podcast should be available on YouTube and Spotify. Uh, Please join me next week. I think I'm going to be talking about the ways that humans have adjusted to the changes of to their sensory environments brought on by COVID over the last year and a half. Um, Looking at some different examples from soccer, music, food, and different arenas uh, and how we've creatively adjusted. Um, So again, thank you for tuning in and I look forward to seeing you next time.